Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what is a warm summer morning here in the capital is Chris Hughes. Chris is the CEO at Greenray Turbine Solutions Limited, a firm which provides a range of products and services relating to industrial gas and steam turbines. Its services include control systems and auxiliaries, turbine products, servicing and repair, as well as training and consultancy. Um, Chris, very warm welcome to yourself this morning and thank you so much for joining us on the show. Good morning. It's a real pleasure having you with us, Chris. Um, I think a good place to start here would be by addressing the elephants in the room, and that's the fact that we are recording this podcast in um, late June 2021, and therefore we are still living under some form of social restrictions due to the COVID-19 global pandemic, and that has been the case now since last March. Looking back over this period by and large, to what extent would you say it's all affected you and affected your business? Uh, the COVID restrictions have uh, infected our business uh, quite a bit in regard to that a lot of our services are delivered by our engineers going to customer sites. Uh, initially, when the COVID pandemic hit, uh, there was a massive close down and a lot of companies didn't know what to do. So it was easy to do nothing. So lots of our scheduled services up in the North Sea or around the world uh, were put on hold. Luckily, we weren't cancelled, but everyone just closed down. Um, and there was just a huge pause while everyone tried to calibrate, you know, what do we do in this situation? Absolutely. It was a moment in time where everything kind of stopped, didn't it? And leaders had to really think about how to address the crisis. And I suppose early on, when sort of COVID was hitting and we were entering that lockdown period, managing individual anxieties within your workforce might have been an issue that you had to deal with. Was that something that you found? Well, I mean, uh, when the Chancellor announced the furlough process, I immediately started putting some of the uh, staff who visited customer sites straight onto uh, the furlough. Um, mm-hmm. At first, uh, my HR people were, were concerned. This was a, a bit abrupt because you know, this hasn't happened before. But uh, you know, having been in other situations and being ex-forces, it's important to be quick and clear and get things done quickly. Um, so we informed the relevant staff what was happening with furlough. I ensured that I personally phoned all the staff individually, explaining what we're doing, why we're doing, and tried to extend uh, understanding. You know, if they were, did have any problems, uh, you know, please reach out to the business. You know, don't keep things quiet. Um, I found phoning all the staff individually took quite a lot of time. Mm. Uh, it wasn't just a quick call. Uh, however, you know, after about a month or so, when it started to look like you know, this isn't going away quickly, People were very happy uh, to have that, having had that conversation, not an email. Um, and why I did feel for you know, two, three weeks, my job wasn't running a business. It was phoning people individually and making sure you had that time to speak to them. It's actually worked very, very well. Is that uh, even from the start, people have been very happy with the communication. So in the first few months, we acted quickly. However, you have to act with compassion. You are affecting people's lives, people's money. And the first thing is going to be worry. 
is you can actually take the time to speak to each member of your team, doesn't matter who they are, to try and convey that you understand this and you know, if there's a problem, please reach out to us. It went a long way. And I can imagine that approach as well as paid dividends, because looking at the accounts of GreenRare, you've actually posted a small profit during the COVID period, haven't you, and all rallied together to make that possible? Yeah, it was very good that, you know, for pre-sectionals that we were actually to keep ourselves uh, above uh, the break-even line. And that was about managing cash, managing uh, customers, and making sure that, you know, we controlled our costs. Like many companies, you know, people suddenly started stopping paying supplies and stopping paying rent. Uh, however, we felt it was important, again, in the same way we talked to our staff, to pick up the phones, talk to our suppliers, and say, no, we're not in a, uh, a terrible financial situation at this time. However, we have to be careful and see how it goes. Yeah? And that regular communication, both with uh, employees and suppliers, gives them the confidence that it's not you know, something terrible isn't happening. Greenway, the business itself, um, has gone into administration in 2018 due to previous management. It was bought out by a private equity company and that was installed in the business. And it took us time over 12 months to re-establish customer contacts and communication with suppliers and to build up our credit rating again. And that communication worked very well. But that sort of speaking with your suppliers, explaining the story, explaining what goes on, worked very well in COVID when we extended this and made sure we were in touch, made sure we told them what we're going to pay and when we're going to pay. And even if it wasn't the full amount at the beginning, if you say you're going to pay £15, you pay the £15 when you say. And mm-hmm. that, again, generates some confidence that you know, you're not sticking the head in the sand. You are speaking. You are being realistic. Because, you know, no one knew what was happening. And it was very important to, as I say, batten down the hatches and make sure that you keep the business going. But because of this, considering uh, the first year of the pandemic, uh, pay all our pay all our bills, do things in a clear, transparent way with our suppliers. Uh, the good thing is, at the end of this process, uh, of the first year, as I said, we've you know, cleared our accounts. We've uh, not made a lot for exceptionals, uh, and um, you know our suppliers have come through this journey with us. That's very, very positive. And I do also like as well how you mentioned earlier that some of the key learnings from your naval career really, really sort of helped you when it came to the crisis management period. And you've instilled the importance of effective communication there, making sure that everybody is talking to each other, all stakeholders, all suppliers within the business. And that is so, so, so vital. Thinking of the sort of pandemic period now by and larger, though, Chris, would you say that there are some things from this period that you have actually learned moving forward? I think, again, it's the, important, the important part here is communication. Uh, if you want to go back, you know, if you take a loan with a bank and you can't pay, they always tell you to speak to the bank. Communication is important. Not saying anything can lead to bad things. Uh, right through the uh, first six, seven months, I sent out a daily email to all staff, uh, try and start it with some sort of cartoon uh, download from the internet. It was quite difficult after the first 100 days to try and find something that was okay to send from a business center point of view, but try and maintain a, you know, a lighter part of the process but keeping in communication. And what I found is, you know, as you always say, if, you, if you're informed of the facts, and this will happen to the forces, if you know what's going on, you can make a decision on your own to move things forward and to make sure that you're doing things in line with everybody else. By maintaining daily communications with emails, we just had town halls, so all the staff had a, a regular update via Teams uh, every two weeks on the state of the business, the state of our orders, and what was going on. 
it meant people knew what's going on. People worry when they don't know what's going on. And was it perhaps difficult adapting to leading a team remotely as opposed to being there with them day to day and actually leading them and being there physically? I think, you know, as we know, um, a lot of people's communication is not just verbal. It's uh, how you look, how you, body language, all these sort of things. Mm. And the problem we found during the whole process, it's difficult to understand the other signs other than the verbal communication of what's going on. Uh, so that's made it quite difficult. It's made, made interviewing new staff a little more hard to try and sort of understand how that fits in. Uh, and also, it's been difficult to understand if individuals are having a stressful time or other things that you may see if you're passing through an office, you can see some staff you know, maybe slumped, slumped on their desk or, you know, as, you know, quite obviously not in a good place. That's very difficult during uh, you know, lockdown period where you can't see teams. And even not during lockdown, where businesses have remote working, yeah, how do you look after the, the welfare of your staff? It is a challenge, isn't it? Being able to gauge that because you can't pick up certain cues over, of course, social channels like that. That is absolutely right. And we talked an awful lot already about the value of communication. And I want to talk about that now in a slightly different context as well, Chris, um, because you kept that very much at the forefront of what you do within GreenRay. That much is clear. But when we talk about the government now, we've mentioned already some of their support measures, the furlough scheme that have helped to keep businesses up and running during this period. But when it comes to issuing guidance to allow certain businesses to sort of operate safely, have you found during the pandemic that it has come through in a timely and indeed a clear manner for what you do? Or has it been a period of having to fend for yourself somewhat and interpret some things on your own? Um, I felt that the, the, the timeline of guidance, and because, of course, the government can't communicate to a small group and you know, let people know the direction they're taking. It has to be done to the whole nation. We found that a lot of the guidance was coming a couple of weeks later than it could have been. So uh, we were trying to find ways of understanding how things were working. And very fortunately, the private equity company uh, we work for was able to get a, uh, a couple of meetings with some people who just left government. Uh, so we were able to understand the type of thinking that was happening within government with the COVID that allowed us to make assumptions and bring things in place. Uh, for example, I brought out a, a traffic light system in regarding to COVID and operations within the business. A couple of weeks later, the government announced a traffic light process. Now, I'm not professing to have a crystal ball, uh, but you know, in regarding to you know, if you could say what could be done better, it may be helpful for business leaders uh, to um, find out the thinking or the processes behind the public information that's coming, just so that people can make decisions if they need to before it comes out and know it's in the general direction of you know, the government thinking. I think that's very right, because even though we've sort of seen a clearer roadmap out of social restrictions now, there's still only real notice of whether Freedom Days are going to be going ahead from a week before. And that sometimes isn't long enough for businesses to plan. It's essentially a process of just plan for the dates to happen and then have to weather the blow if it doesn't go ahead. So even that has been quite difficult, hasn't it? It has. And again, the government's kind of guide over 60 million people. However, it's quite difficult times to find, you know, these exact understandings for particular areas. I can give you a clear example. 
Uh, we had some of our engineers returning from India, uh, and we had to put them into the Red List Quarantine Hotel. But even still, when they arrived back in the UK, because they were working in the oil and gas sector, they were exempt from the exempt from the hotel. But again, you know, it wasn't clear that that was the case until we put the letter in front of the person at uh, the border and Border Force posted it and confirmed it was correct. So there are sometimes uh, difficulties when they're specific to specific industries of understanding and finding a way uh, of doing that. But I fully understand the government is, you know, they have to govern and communicate for the mass. And where there are slight uh, differences to specific sectors, it's very hard for those sectors to understand 100% until you turn up at Border Force for that letter, is it going to work? And you don't know. Exactly right. There is still so much uncertainty there and we are still somewhat in a state of limbo with the new Freedom Day. It is due on July the 19th, having been pushed back from June and we still don't know whether it will go ahead in its full form or whether there are still some restrictions that will remain and affect industry. Um, But if we assume that we are going to move out of social restrictions pretty much entirely within the next two to three months, just before we wrap things up, Chris, where ideally would you like to see your industry heading over the next 12 months and indeed where do you see Greenway this time in 2022 all being well? So for the industry I mean uh, a lot of oil and gas and things requires engineers to go out uh, to sites and visit sites. Uh, I think lots of the uh, COVID health and safety measures on sites have been very good uh, and are, are extensions of uh, what's currently in place of good practice for health and safety. Uh, I do think that you know, there needs to be a clear balance between the industry and others around. Uh, you know, there are people within uh, critical industries, supporting utilities that have to go out and do their jobs around other people uh, who have other COVID restrictions. It's just that, you know, trying to make sure whether there's a, a card or a passport or something that identifies as a key worker doing a key task that will make it a lot easier than some of the unclear information that goes to uh businesses or airlines or transports or hotels and you know whether this happens again or whether we need a further lockdown it may be helpful if there's a it's the wrong word a passport process but you know, uh, there are passport processes to go off north sea you have this done once you have the card then you can go off, off the north sea it may be worthwhile looking at uh, uh, for the future uh, key industries that will have to continue working through a pandemic or other reasons that would make calls restrictions on people's movements is a clear way to identify those industries and what they can and can't do. And mm. to follow your second question, where we see the Greenway, so the Greenway operate within the UK, but also uh, in, the, uh, in India and the Middle East. Uh, we expect things to return in the UK to a lot more normal, and we're expecting uh, the work of our engineers going to sites around the UK to improve. Uh, but I do think in regarding to the Southern Hemisphere and some areas, uh, in Asia and Africa, it could be 18 months before we return to even something near to what normal was. Now, we're very lucky in the UK uh, and the West being further ahead of the vaccine program, but uh, a lot of uh, oil and gas industries are not in the West, and how we support how we support those countries and support their, their operations will be an interesting period over the next 18 months. 
it's going to be hugely important, isn't it? And the World Health Organization certainly is pushing that message that nobody is safe until everybody is safe. And so that global vaccine rollout is going to be absolutely critical, particularly for the oil and gas sectors. And I think as we start to understand over the uh, the coming year or so, Chris, what sort of shape the recovery in the West is taking and how the battle against the virus is shaping up in those more developing countries. I'd relish the opportunity to actually welcome you back onto the show with us just to catch up on how things are getting on because it's very much an ongoing situation and in a global context we're very much not out of the woods with this yet. It is. I mean, the one thing I'd like to just drop at the end is uh, during our audit uh, process when we have our account signed off, I was asked a question by the auditors you know, um, uh, how are we going to manage the COVID risk? And I responded, COVID is no longer a risk. It's a known. We're going to be living and working with this for the foreseeable future. So it's not something that may happen. It's something that is happening. Mm. And businesses like ourselves and others need to understand how to operate within the COVID environment, need to understand how to keep their staff safe and understand how to communicate with their customers to explain what can and can't be done uh, without trying to sound difficult. So, as I said, we have to manage now. COVID is no longer a risk. It's a fact. It's here. And you have to em- embrace it here and find a way to work within the constraints. They will ease as time goes on. But as we know, depending on which country and which areas of the world you're supporting, there is no clear timeline when it will be back to normal. Food for thought for the world's leaders, certainly. Perhaps it is indeed time for a change in mentality. Chris, thank you ever so much again for joining us on the programme today. It's been a real pleasure having you with us. And do continue to take care and stay safe with everything still going on in the world as well. Thank you, Scott. And the same to you. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Chris Hughes, CEO at Greenrate Turbine Solutions, onto today's programme. And I would also extend that message to all of our listeners tuning into today's show as well. Please do continue to take care and stay safe because it makes such a key difference in saving lives. Better days are ahead, but we're not quite there just yet. Coming up next onto the programme, we will be welcoming Lord David Blunkett, the Leaders' Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, to discuss his take on the ongoing COVID situation and his hopes for the weeks and the months ahead. That is coming up now. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and of course whether they can receive the the grant 10,000 or 25,000 all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future but I think the second thing to say and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is 
that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for a British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods. 
including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. 
those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months 
when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports, and this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy sh- cut, uh, shutdown, um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision one of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about 
proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so I very much if I were in government and I always think of things in that context what would I do if I were in government 
I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. 
What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the leaders' council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.